understanding is that we are uh, in the book of Acts for scripture reading, and today's passage or this week's passage is Acts 17 through 20, and we're going to read from Acts 17 for the scripture reading this morning, and I would invite you to take a Bible and turn there, or you can follow along. I think it's going to be on the screen as I read from Acts 17, beginning with verse 22 and to the end of the chapter. So here's what Paul, what Luke writes about Paul, beginning in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he's actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. And may God bless the reading of his word today. So, these verses that we just read are Paul's proclaiming the gospel at the city of Athens. And Athens is just one of three cities in this chapter in Acts 17 where Paul travels to spread the good news to both Jews and non-Jews. But the reason I chose this passage is because it's part of a scripture reading that is for this week, but also it's a scripture reading that emphasizes the return of Jesus. Did you notice that? At the end of Paul's message, he says that the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So Paul is referring to the return of Jesus. And I'm fascinated by this messaging that he uses here because he asserts that Jesus is going to return someday to judge the world in righteousness. And it's such a blessing to see that because, to be honest, some people today don't like to think very much about Jesus' return. In fact, Peter warned that there was going to come a day that people would reject talking about Jesus' return and saying, hey, where's the promise of his coming? All things continue as they are, and uh, we're just not going to think about it 
and that's what happens. But it's interesting to me that Paul does not limit his messaging of the gospel here to the fact that Jesus died, as important as that is, and it's very important, but he includes the return of Jesus at the end of this message, the end of this sermon. Now, as I said a little bit ago, Dale and I lead the, the Gospel Story Arc Project, and our focus is on helping everyone to see the value of expanding the gospel message beyond the fact that Jesus died on the cross. Again, as important as that is. And I'm really grateful that Jesus died. I'm so grateful that he suffered and died for us. And uh, I would never intentionally do anything to diminish the value of proclaiming his death and his shed blood for us. But what makes Jesus' suffering and death so significant is the fact of who he is. And that's the larger story about him in the scriptures. So whenever I talk about the Gospel Story Arc Project, I always say that we, uh, anytime we share the gospel, we share information from four categories. And if you've been around me very long, you've heard this before. We share who Jesus is, what Jesus did, who we are, and a call to believe. And unfortunately, though, the larger story of who Jesus is, that first point, that first category, has all but dropped out of most gospel presentations, along with the larger story of what Jesus did and will do someday when he returns. And so it's fascinating to me to see Paul's messaging here in Acts 17 and to see him expanding the messaging of the gospel beyond the death and burial of Jesus to tell more of Jesus' story, including the fact that Jesus is going to return someday, first to judge the world in righteousness, and then, as we know, to restore all things. Now, it doesn't mean that Paul didn't talk about Jesus' death. Of course he did. But early on, when, we, when, when Paul talked about Jesus dying, he actually had to prove that Jesus dying didn't disqualify him from his being considered the Christ. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before. But back in the Gospel of John, when Jesus was claiming to be the Christ, and meanwhile telling people that he was about to die, people began to object. And here's what they said back in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, and verse 34. They said, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. So how can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? You see, Jesus talked about being lifted up as the manner of his death. And they were wondering, how in the world does this go with you being the Christ? We've heard the Christ is going to live forever. So every time Paul shared the gospel, he used the larger story of the Christ found throughout the scriptures to prove that's who Jesus is. So for example... Take Thessalonica, which is one of the other cities that Paul writes about near the beginning of this chapter. And here's what verses 2 and 3 say at the beginning of Acts 17. It says that Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you, he's the Christ. You see, Paul had to argue. He had to explain that just because Jesus died didn't disqualify him from being the Christ 
And he had to use the larger story of who Jesus is and Jesus' resurrection to prove that Jesus is the Christ. But now, in Athens, he uses the resurrection to prove something else entirely, and that's the fact that Jesus is coming again. And I love that. And so now, I know this is going to seem a little strange, but I'm going to stop now and give you the application for today. And by the way, don't get your hopes up. This is not going to be just a 10-minute sermon. I'm kind of old school, so 10-minute sermons, that's kind of an oxymoron to me. So that's not what's going to happen here today. But I do want to stop for a moment and give the application. And it has two parts. And the first is this. I want to call us today to restoring to the front of our minds and to the top of our hearts that part of the gospel that says Jesus is going to return. I don't know when the last time is that you've thought about the return of Christ. But I want to encourage you to restore that to the top of your mind and at the top of your heart, the front of your mind, that Jesus is coming again. He will return someday to judge the world in righteousness and to restore all things. And it's extremely important for us to restore this promise, as I say, to the front of our minds and the top of our hearts. And the second part of this application is to call us to active waiting, active waiting for Jesus' return. Not just waiting, but active waiting. Indeed, Jesus is coming again. It's an undeniable element of the larger story told in Scripture about him. He's going to return someday to finally crush the head of the serpent, crush the head of Satan, and to destroy the serpent's seed. Now, now we know that Jesus came the first time, born of a virgin as a helpless baby, and he grew up and lived a perfect life, and he performed miracles to authenticate his identity, but he was rejected and he was murdered on the cross. And so they buried him. And he was three days in the tomb. But we know he didn't stay dead. He rose again, just like Paul said in the passage that we read. But soon after, Jesus was, he, he ascended to the right hand of God the Father, where he was exalted as the Lord of lords and King of kings. And here's the thing. From that lofty position, Jesus is now interceding for us. And we know that. But there's so much more. Because also at the right hand of God, from that lofty position, Jesus even now is like a mighty general orchestrating events in this world that will lead ultimately to the defeat of Satan and to the events that are part of his coming again for the second time. And by our actively waiting for Jesus to return, we're part of what Jesus is doing now in the world to propel the world forward to the end that he's promised. And so the application is to restore Jesus' return to its rightful place in the gospel and in our hearts and minds and in our worship and in the church. And by the way, if we had started reading earlier in Acts 17, we would have noticed what motivated Paul to talk about the return of Jesus in the way that he did. So Acts 17 and verse 16 says this. Now while Paul was waiting for them, for others that were with him, while he was waiting for them at Athens, 
His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now the kind of idols that Paul, or that Paul saw that Luke is referring to here were not just so-called idols of the heart. Have you ever heard of idols of the heart? I mean, everybody has heard of idols of the heart. I'll never forget returning from Asia on one occasion where we had lived in Asia for several months. And uh, the church that we went to on that occasion, um, the pastor was preaching about idols of the heart. And it was just so ironic because we had come from a place where there were real objects of worship. Uh, idols of stone and of precious metals. And, and that's what Paul, he's not talking about idols of the heart. He saw actual idols. And um, as I say, we saw them, my wife and I, for, for years we oversaw ministry in several Asian country, countries. And, and so we know what real idols are. And we know the connections that people make in their hearts to those idols and to their stories. And by the way, when somebody offers fruit or something like that to an idol, I remember going to the giant Buddha in Kamakura, Japan, and seeing fruit laid out in front of that, that 40-foot-tall something Buddha that's there and wondering, how in the world do people think that that Buddha is going to eat that fruit? Well, they don't have any clue about that. They believe that there's some spirit tied to that idol, some spirit tied to the story of that idol, and that that fruit's going to be eaten spiritually. So we know exactly what Paul was seeing. He saw those kinds of idols in every city. And I really think it's important for me to say that the idols were in every city that Paul went to because the rest of Acts 17, if you were to read that this morning, you'll notice it doesn't specifically mention idols in Thessalonica or Thess idols in Berea, the other city that Paul went to. But we know that those cities were full of idols too. And one of the ways we know that is if you look in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verses 9 and 10, you'll see that Paul commends the Thessalonians for their response to the gospel. And here's what he says. He says, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. And here it is. And how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So there you have it. The same connection to idols in Thessalonica that Paul observed in Athens. And, and I don't know if that verse was on the screen or not. I wasn't paying attention. But if you saw it, did you notice the same connection as well to actively waiting for Jesus' return? Did you see that? Again, the Thessalonians turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So the Thessalonians were actively waiting for Jesus to return. And these verses, by the way, in 1 Thessalonians help us to break down what I mean by actively waiting. And we can break it down into two overarching priorities. First is serving the living and true God. And then the second priority is waiting for his son from heaven. Serving and waiting. Serving and waiting. They're flip sides of the same coin. And they are, are both critical. And both refer to our serving with 
Jesus' return playing an active role in all that we do. I talked about restoring this to our worship and our hearts and minds and to the church. I'm talking about restoring it to everything, playing an active role in all that we do, serving and waiting. It's not something that we just tuck away somewhere in the back of our minds. In the front of our minds, at the top of our hearts, that Jesus is going to return. That's where it will influence our relationships and our ministries. And by the way, it becomes a grid, a kind of grid by which, through which we will process our understanding of everything that's happening in the world. Have you noticed, especially since COVID, there's a lot of things happening in this world. By the way, a lot of things happening in, in line with biblical prophecy about the end of the age. And we have to have a biblical grid through which to process our understanding of what's going on in the world. And that's what serving and waiting is all about. Even now, as Jesus is orchestrating the events leading to his return. And like this mighty general orchestrating events that will lead to the ultimate defeat of his enemies and the restoration of all things. So without both priorities, without serving and waiting, both, our lives and ministries quickly get out of balance. And that goes for both waiting without serving or serving without waiting. Those would be out of balance, lives and ministries. Waiting on Jesus' return without serving, waiting without serving, is not what we're after. We're not after that at all. Waiting without serving means missing out on experiences of Christ's love flowing through us. And, and those are the experiences that will change us and that will sanctify us. So we're not at all thinking about just waiting for Jesus to return and then doing nothing in this world. That's waiting without serving. But serving without waiting, serving without our allowing the promise of Jesus' return to occupy our hearts and minds and to influence us at every turn, that also carries significant risk. Because it can blind us from seeing our place in the world. And it can blind us from understanding the times in which we live. And from seeing that all that Jesus is doing in the world as he's orchestrating Events leading to his return. And by the way, that takes us back to what happened in Athens. Because after Paul finished preaching, Acts 17, 32 through 34 tells us that several people came to faith in Jesus. So in other words, this mighty general that Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father, he is there orchestrating events and the defeat of one of his enemies, the enemy of unbelief in the lives of a number of people. Listen, if you're here today as a believer in Christ, or if you're listening online, watching online as a believer in Christ, you're a believer because Jesus has defeated the enemy of unbelief in your heart. You and I are trophies of the power of Christ to defeat the enemy of unbelief in our hearts. And if you're here or if you're listening and you are not a believer in Jesus, then I want to invite you to believe in who Jesus is. I want you to invite, invite you to discover that, who Jesus is, and the larger story that the Bible tells about him in, 
Indeed, he's the risen Savior. He's the exalted Lord. He's the soon-to-return Christ. And he's worthy of your faith and your love. Now, back in Athens, it says that some mocked. And others said, we want to hear more. But some did believe. Did you notice that? Some did believe. And in fact, there were similar responses to Paul's message in Thessalonica and Berea. But, but here's the thing. Only in Athens are there people actually named who became believers in Christ on that day. And I think you're going to find this interesting. Because their names point to the final victory that Jesus is going to have someday over all of his enemies. And the names, if you'll recall from verse 34, verse 34 headlines Dionysius and Damaris. Dionysius and Damaris. Now, I really love it when, when Bible stories include names because the meaning of those names often factor into the stories. And it does in this case. It's the case for Dionysius and Damaris. So I'm going to tell you the meaning of those names. And I'm going to start with Damaris. And I'm going to need to apologize ahead of time if there's anybody here with that name. Or if there's anybody watching or listening with that name. Because I'm going to let the cat out of the bag here. And I probably should say I'm going to let the cow out of the bag. Because Damaris literally means heifer, a female cow. Do you know anybody named Damaris? I wouldn't advise you to be the one to tell them. But anyway, Damaris literally means a female cow. And that may seem funny to us, but it's significant in this story. And so I'm going to come back to it in just a moment after I tell you about Dionysius. Dionysius is the name of a well-known pagan god. A, a god believed to be the son of Zeus. Now, if you study paganism, you're going to find out that there are a lot of different uh, gods, so-called, that are part of, of paganism, or sons of Zeus or whatever, daughters of Zeus. But Dionysius is one of the, the most well-known, one of the most prominent sons of Zeus. And he was, quote, a golden-haired son, S-U-N, a golden-haired son whose beams caused the earth to yield her increase. And Dionysius is just about everywhere you turn in paganism. It's really remarkable. And you find him associated with all sorts of myths and festivals, and virtually all of those are featuring immorality and drunkenness. Have you heard of Bacchus? Dionysius and Bacchus are basically the same persons in paganism. And guess what? Cows were used for sacrifice to Dionysius and as objects of worship in association with him. And so that's why it's not surprising to see the name Damaris mentioned here in connection to Dionysius. Dionysius was the son of Zeus, and Damaris was his worshiper. But most important of all, and listen to this, Dionysius had another name. He was believed to be the serpent man. In other words, Dionysius was known as the seed of the serpent, the satanic rival to Jesus who is Identified in the Bible as the seed of the woman. Dionysius, the seed of the serpent. Jesus, the seed of the woman. And back in Genesis 3, and maybe you'll recall this, God said there's going to be constant enmity between the 
serpent and its seed and the woman and her seed. Do you remember it saying that? Constant enmity, constant conflict. And that in the end, the serpent and its seed would be totally defeated. The seed of the woman would destroy them. And Satan, of course, knows all this as well as anyone. And so throughout of history, one of his strategies, one of his strategies has been to convince people that the conflict is over. And that the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman have been reconciled. And by the way, that's not only a proposition that existed in paganism, it's a proposition that is likely to rear its ugly head at the end of the age, just before Jesus returns. And that's another study all by itself. But now we're back in Athens. And here are two people, Dionysius and Damaris, with names invoking a distinctly anti-Christian worldview. And invoking a counter story to the story of the seed of the woman. A counter story that's focused on the outrageous proposition that the serpent, the seed of the serpent, has replaced the seed of the woman. And what happens? Both of them, both Dionysius and Damaris, hear the gospel. And the message, not only of Jesus' sacrificial death and his resurrection but also of his return in total victory over the seed of the serpent and the serpent itself. And so both Dionysius and Damaris became believers. In spite of their names suggesting a, a completely different ending, both become believers in Jesus. And do you know what that signals? I'm sure this was done intentionally. I'm sure Luke included those names intentionally. Because it signals that Jesus is even now very active in the world and very aware of the strategies of Satan and of Satan's plan for the world, of Satan's story for the world, his counter story. But nevertheless, Jesus is at work in the world now. And like this mighty general orchestrating events that will lead to Satan's defeat and to the defeat of his seed, and to the defeat of all of his enemies, including the enemy of unbelief. And so this report from Luke of Dionysius and Damaris coming to faith in Jesus invites us, it invites us today to restore Jesus' return to its place in the gospel and in the church. And to join the Thessalonians in actively waiting for Jesus to return. So that we too recognize what Jesus is doing in the world today to fulfill his promise, to finish what he started, and ultimately to defeat all of his enemies and to restore all things. You know, it wasn't too long ago that, um, maybe a couple years ago now, that I was preaching in a church in northern Indiana. And I was sharing about the gospel story arc and the messaging that includes Jesus returning at the end of that messaging. And after the service, a lady came up to me, came up to my wife and me, and she said, I really don't like it when you talk about Jesus coming back. My husband and I just retired, and we've got all kinds of dreams and plans for our future, so don't talk to us about the return of Jesus. I mean, I could hardly believe what I was hearing. 
Don't be like that. We shouldn't be like that. Jesus is going to come again. And he is, even now, orchestrating the events of the world, orchestrating the politics of the world, orchestrating in the hearts and minds of men all over the world the events that are going to lead to his sure return and defeat of all of his enemies. And may God help us to restore that to the front of our minds and the top of our hearts for his glory as we continue to serve and wait. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for the opportunity that we have to study your word and to consider from your word the promise that Jesus is going to return again someday to judge everyone in righteousness, but also then to restore all things. And what a blessing that is. And I pray that today you would help us to become the kind of people who serve and wait. Serve and wait actively for Jesus to return. And we pray this in your precious name. Amen.